Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for joining us. We've been talking a lot this week about housing. Yesterday, we were joined by Richard Rothstein, whose book, The Color of Law, explores the role that the federal government played in creating the segregation we see in housing patterns today. And on today's program, we're going to talk about the promise of the Fair Housing Act passed in the 1960s and whether it's panning out. We'll also discuss HUD Secretary Ben Carson's decision to raise rents for people who receive federal housing assistance. Our focus here, housing across a number of policy fronts, is also going to be the focus of a prolonged community discussion that we are planning to host this summer here on Detroit Today. We're going to frame it all around the book Evicted by Matthew Desmond, which explored the ways in which rental evictions are not just a symptom of poverty, but a driver of it. And that'll lead us to wider discussions about housing insecurity here in southeast Michigan. Think about the evictions that take place every day, not just in the city of Detroit, but all over the metro region. Think of the tax foreclosures that happen each year, sending people out of the homes that they own here in the city of Detroit. Think of issues like squatting or the way in which constant mobility affects schools. We want to talk about all of those issues as a community. So we'll be hosting several events during which you can come and join us to talk about those issues. We will have many segments on the program over the summer talking about these issues. And we're partnering with other organizations who will engage the community in their own way. We are really excited about this program. Details will be coming soon, and you can stay tuned to them at WDET.org. Up front today, a recent article in The New Yorker examined the unfulfilled promise of the Fair Housing Act, which was signed into the law by President Lyndon B. Johnson in 1968. The piece, written by Professor Michelle Adams, examines the Fair Housing Act through the lens of our very own city, Detroit. Here's an excerpt from the article. It says the Fair Housing Act was meant to do two things, outlaw individual acts of housing discrimination and foster integration. It was the first time that Congress declared it illegal for private individuals to discriminate on the basis of race in the sale or rental of housing. This was no small thing. An early civil rights statute adopted in 1866 said that all citizens, quote, shall have the same right as is it enjoyed by white citizens thereof to inherit, purchase, lease, sell, hold, and convey real and personal property. But this protection was treated as addressing only government action. Before 1968, it was assumed to be perfectly legal for owners to refuse to sell homes to black families or for a private bank to deny a potential black home buyer a loan or for a broker to lie and say that no homes were available. The law successfully made these individual acts of explicit racial discrimination in housing transactions illegal, and residential segregation by race has since declined. But the Fair Housing Act has never fully delivered on its promise to promote and further integration. Joining me now to talk more about integration and integration in housing through the lens of Detroit is Michelle Adams. She is a professor of, of law at Yeshiva University's Benjamin N. Cardozo 
School of Law and the author of the recent New Yorker idol, uh, article titled The Unfilled, Unfulfilled Promise of the Fair Housing Act. Michelle Adams, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me on. This is a terrific uh, moment, and I wanted, was listening to your intro, and I wanted to, to really commend you on trying to put together a series of conversations about housing in Detroit and what you're going to be doing moving forward and, and having those conversations. And I'm also delighted to hear that you had Richard on the program yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, his his new book is terrific. Yes, it is. Uh, we're very excited, as I said, about uh, trying to host this conversation this summer and hopefully get to some solutions about some of the problems. It's much that needed. We see. Yes. Uh, so let's start with uh, let's start with your personal story, which is the way that you begin the article in uh, in the in the New Yorker. Uh, you are someone who's from here as well, and uh, your parents experienced some of the problems that uh, that used to exist uh, in in terms of what the law did not do to fight housing discrimination. Tell, tell us about well, that. Well, you know, I'm happy to do that. And, um, you know, I think about my parents' story. It had a big impact on me. And I think that it's an example of the kind of thing that happened before the Fair Housing Act was passed. And it's very, you know, it, it was a big impact. But I think that, you know, this is something that a lot of black folks can look back into their family stories and have stories like this. And really it was, you know, a situation where my parents got married and uh, my father was a lawyer in Detroit, and they were doing well, and they wanted to buy their dream house in Palmer Woods. And, uh, you know, as as we know, that's a lovely neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my mother told me uh, a few years before she died, or a little bit before she died, that there isn't really no way for them to be able to buy the lot there. They wanted to buy a lot and then build a house. And um, they had to do it through a white intermediary um, to be able to actually purchase the property. And then they were, you know, they they did that in 67, and then later they were able to build the house in the 19, early 1970s. But I do think that, that that experience is one where you really do see black folks wanting to sort of have the same thing and have the same opportunities and have the same dreams as everyone else, but not being able to do that because of a racial bar. Mm-hmm. And that's really something that got me thinking a lot about Detroit. I actually left when I was 17 and got me started thinking about a book that I'm writing having to do with housing and schools in the city of Detroit. Mm-hmm. And and so let's talk about what happens the year after your parents uh, buy this home in, in, in Palmer Wards, 1967. In 1968, Lyndon Johnson signs the Fair Housing Act, and these things, these, these barriers are supposed to fall. Talk about why that hasn't happened to the extent that perhaps people might have anticipated it would happen in 1968. Well, you know, in order to to talk about that, I do think it's important to sort of set the framework by looking back a little bit. So we had this amazing conflagration of events in 1968. Uh, The Fair Housing Act, I think, would not have been possible uh, if Dr. King had not been assassinated. Um, It had been bottled up for a long time uh, in committee uh, and it comes, it basically is signed just a little bit after he dies and after the cities around the country sort of explode uh, uh, in reaction to that. And suddenly there's this in- incredible desire to sort of uh, sign a piece of, sign a statute that would be, that would be important in terms of desegregating uh, our neighborhoods. 
uh, this also happened in connection with, you know, the Kerner Commission had done a, a had done a, a huge report that came out around the same time, and mm-hmm. the the Kerner Commission that was responding to what had happened in '67, including the riots in Detroit in 1967, and in the Kerner Commission, the uh, the commission found that it was really important to have, a, uh, or one of the recommendations was to have a, fe- a piece of federal legislation that would deal with systematic race discrimination in housing. But I do think you have to go back in order to understand why why the expectations, I think, weren't met. And that is to think about, and to do that through the lens of my family, to think about my grandparents coming to Detroit, part of the Great Migration, as so many other blacks did, mm-hmm. and then being locked into specific neighborhoods and not being able to get out. And that happening because of a you know a variety of factors, including uh, government interaction as well as private violence, and so there was this huge amount of discrimination that occurred previous to 1968. And so the idea is you're going to pass a federal statute; it's much needed, but is it going to be able to undo you know several generations of systemic discrimination in housing. And so part of it is looking back and realizing how entrenched the problem was. And so there were expectations and we had hopes in 1968 that it would do that. But even in 68, after the statute is passed, you can see that there's some problems with it, including mm-hmm. sort of a weak enforcement on the part of HUD. And so HUD doesn't really have a strong hand in being able to to enforce the statute. And it's left up to individual actors, individual people who are discriminated against to be able to to enforce it. And so it's quite difficult to do that. The uh, I, I often talk about what happens after 1968 uh, as sort of uh, not so much a pushback, and and there 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 clearly was that uh, after the Fair Housing Act is is passed, and and uh, you you get a Republican president elected that year, Richard Nixon, who thinks about these things rather differently than Lyndon B. Johnson, but I but I also sort of talk about it in the in the sense of uh, a, a curtailed execution of these of these programs. In other words, uh, lots of the things that got passed as part of you know civil rights legislation in the '60s never really had a chance to to work before you had this this Republican lens put over it that really changed the way it was interpreted and enforced. Uh, is is it fair to say that's one of the things that that really stunts the effectiveness of the Fair Housing Act? Well, it's interesting. You know, I think you think about Republicans, but you actually had a fight within the Republican Party after Mm -hmm. the Fair Housing Act is passed. So you have Nixon, who basically is running on a sort of anti-busing sort of status quo. Let's try to turn things back as much as possible, but certainly not not advance in terms of uh, uh, anti-discrimination focus. But then you have another Republican, Governor Romney, um, who was head of HUD at the time, mm-hmm. who had a very different view. They're both in the Republican Party. Um, but Governor Romney said, you know, let's look at this statute and let's actually enforce it. And one of the provisions under the statute, uh, if enforced, it's called the Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing portion of the statute, really puts an affirmative obligation on HUD as the enforcing agency to integrate, not just to sort of say, stop segregating, but to actually integrate. And so turning to localities then, one of the things that Romney wanted to do is is he wanted to tie the receipt of federal housing money 
to non-discrimination and to integration and to placing affordable housing in some neighborhoods and some cities, including places like Warren. Mm -hmm. Um, And that caused a tremendous amount of pushback from folks within the Nixon administration. So you have this fight in the Republican Party right after the Fair Housing Act is passed about sort of, you know, how how much are we going to enforce this statute? And I think Romney tried, but he lost that fight. He ends up actually stepping down. Yeah. Uh, This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Michelle Adams. She is a professor of law at Yeshiva University's Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law. She's a recent... She recently authored an article in The New Yorker titled The Unfulfilled Promise of the Fair Housing Act. We are talking about that article. We are also talking about housing policy. How has it changed since 1968? And how have the outcomes of housing policy changed over that time? Do we see more integration in communities because of it? Do we see not as much integration as we might have? If you want to join the conversation, give us a call, 313-577-1019. What does your neighborhood look like in terms of diversity, and what does that mean to you? Are you somebody who chooses where you live based on the diversity that exists there, and do you believe that that diversity uh, is maybe a product of the Fair Housing Act? Is that something that's on your mind? Uh, Also, do you think, is there anything more that you would like to see the government doing to help integrate housing spaces uh, here in Metro Detroit or around the country? As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or if you go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Arnold on Facebook says, the city of Troy, which is a suburb here in Detroit, is one of the most diverse cities in the country. It is even politically diverse with both Democrats and Republicans. What really causes separation is class and marital status. Married women do not want to live in a neighborhood with lots of single moms. Too much temptation for their sons and husbands. Married couples with two incomes can afford to segregate themselves from poor single-parent families. Segregation is about economics and marriage, not race. Uh, Michelle Adams, I'd, I'd love to hear your reaction to what Arnold is saying there. Well, I think class is certainly a part of it and income certainly a part of it, but it's hard for me to think about the Fair Housing Act and the history of the Fair Housing Act and where we are today without thinking about race. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that you know, it's interesting to try to focus on looking at things today in a in a way that's sort of taken apart from our history. Today we might say, oh, well, people who have higher incomes live together and that makes sense because they can afford to have more expensive houses and and have nicer things and so they want to live in nicer neighborhoods. But that's sort of taken apart and not taken... Um, not thinking about sort of how we got to be where we are. So, for instance, how do how do neighborhoods and how do cities get to be uh, sort of higher income? How do we preserve that? One of the ways that we preserve that is through things like zoning. So, for instance, we zone in a way that we only allow for single-family homes. Mm-hmm. We don't allow for, for multifamily occupancy. We don't allow for affordable housing. And so that has a particular impact on folks who have less income. We might ask, well, why do, you know, African-Americans on the whole have less income and in particular less wealth? And one of the reasons why they have less wealth is because they had less of an opportunity to be able to 
achieve wealth and to grow wealth through their homes. Most Americans, their sort of greatest amount of wealth accumulation is through their home. But if we go back and we look at sort of why is it that African Americans don't have that level of wealth, it has a lot to do with actions taken on the part of the government in the past, Mm -hmm. uh, some of which were outlawed by the Fair Housing Act, some of which continue today or are perpetuated today by things like exclusionary zoning. And so if we just look at the question of income, if we look just look at the question of class, we're not seeing the whole picture. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is, there is this uh, uh, narrative that persists, I guess, in this discussion about uh, intentionality versus accidental uh, circumstance, right? Uh, I, I think there are a lot of people who want to say, well, this is just about choice and and what people prefer, and they want to dissociate it from the sort of intentional discrimination that created uh, these these circumstances. And some of that is, be- I think, because of time, right? Uh, that that uh, the law changed fifty years ago. Uh, why shouldn't why shouldn't uh, we we be looking more at now than then? But but as you point out, this idea of disconnecting the present from the past. It's really dangerous uh, when you're trying to to sort of think through uh, the the outcomes of, of policy change. They are they are uh, intrinsically and inextricably connected. Yeah, I know. I think it's it's very hard because I think everyone wants to think of themselves as being a good person, and I think in our minds we are, and we think. I didn't do that. I don't intend to discriminate. I don't hate anybody because of their race. I think that's a terrible thing. And th- and these things are all true. But what's the reality is that a number of things can be true simultaneously. It can simultaneously be true mm-hmm. that you don't harbor any particular animus towards anyone in your heart at the same time that um, we perpetuate what happened in the past maybe not through intentional acts, but through acts that don't have, you know, the, what, what lawyers would call facially race neutral. Right. And I do think zoning is one of the best examples of that, where we think, I didn't, I didn't discriminate against anybody. My city is not discriminating against anybody. What's everybody complaining about? But then if we have cities where we perpetuate through exclusionary zoning, or if we have a federal government that this is happening today that decides we're we're going to continue not to enforce the Fair Housing Act, and so we take federal housing money, uh, but we do that without a without a thought towards how we're going to desegregate, um, then we do perpetuate what happened in the past, and I think that's the conversation. That's a it's a difficult conversation. It is. It's not one that it's not one that everybody wants to have, and so one of the things I want to do is to try to push forward those conversations. And we see this happening across the country in, in many different ways. I mean, even just this week, the opening of the museum in in uh, Montgomery, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, talking about lynching. That's a very, very, very difficult conversation. But I think in order to understand how we got here and why things are the way they are, we have to have that conversation. Yes. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Uh, also go to Facebook Put your comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work you in to the conversation. Let's go to Michael in Pleasant Ridge. Michael, welcome to Detroit Today. Hello there. Hi. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, what I wanted to comment was on was that when I was growing up, I was it was a very um, conscious thing not to be, um, you know, um, racially um, motivated. You, you wanted everybody was the same, and we've all heard that. Um, that kind of a party line. But then what happened, so we're talking about the 70s, and all, I remember when, um, so I lived in Southfield, and I remember when 
one black family moved in on the street, and then all of a sudden there were houses going up all over the place mm. for sale. Mm. And so the argument wasn't that it was racial. The argument was property values, which I thought was pretty disingenuous even even when I was a lot younger. And um, and it's it was really amazing how fast um, people moved out. I mean, it, it probably didn't take more than like 10 years before there was such a significant dent that um, it was almost like it, it was not a mixed neighborhood anymore. It was almost it was, it was basically a black neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And what I thought was sort of interesting is that when you look at another area like Oak Park, um, where the Orthodox Jew- Jewish community, they stand firm and they want to live where they want to live, and then they can live in an integrated neighborhood. And so I think it's really unfortunate that people make up excuses. I really think that's what we do is we make up excuses on why it's okay to not really, to not do the right thing, if you will. Yeah. Uh, Michael, thanks very much for the call uh, and the comments. Uh, I think that's probably a story that a lot of people who grew up here in Metro Detroit in the, in the 70s and 80s could, could relate to, this, this changing of, of neighborhoods. Uh, Michelle, uh, there is this, this sort of, um, after the Fair Housing Act passes, there is this moving into the suburbs of African Americans, into places that they were not allowed before. And as Michael points out, what we see uh, often then is not integration, but sort of a chasing effect that unfolds, that uh, you see suburbs move further out from from the city as African American families uh, chase them. And that is, that does get to perceptions, I think, uh, of, of race and, and racial dynamic. Uh, and, and it's a, a vestige, though, of, uh, of this de jure segregation that, that sort of framed the whole, the whole thing to begin with. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's interesting to think about that. I mean, part of this is you have to understand is against the background of the structure of having many, many, many small communities. Mm-hmm. So it's very... If you have, you know, governmental fragmentation, so lots of lots of small suburban communities, it's actually relatively easy to pick up and leave one and then move and move to another, right? So that's one piece of it. Mm-hmm. I think the other piece of it, though, is sort of what black signals, right? So, right. you know, it's folks interact on a one-to-one level with individual black people and they're like, oh, you know, I like this person. But then when you have a certain number of black people in a particular Mm -hmm. area, that then signals something else. And I think what happens is folks think, well, you know, I've invested X amount of dollars into my house and that's also tied to where my kids are going to go to school. And I think this is really important, the the relationship between housing and schools. I think it's important not just to talk about housing, but talk about schools. And so... uh, I, I think that what's going to happen is if I stay here long enough that the school districts themselves or the, or the schools that my kids go to are going to become more and more black. And what I'm worried about is, you know, maybe things I'm not even actually able to say. That's I'm not right. even actually able to articulate what it is I'm worried about. But I'm worried about something. I may be worried about the value of my home and the fact that the majority of my wealth is tied up in my home. I'm worried about what the school is going to be like. I'm worried about whether the teachers who we think are pretty good are going to stay or are the teachers going to move and then we're going to have we're going to have a different teaching environment in the schools and so part of what's happening is that all of this sort of um, you know years and years and years of first slavery and then uh, 
you know, Jim Crow, essentially black folks signal a particular thing. They sick that, you know, there's a phrase called a race making situation. And so we're just concerned, we're scared. And we think, you know, in terms of individual actions, we'll move and we'll just take care of ourselves. And so that's exactly what happens. Mm-hmm. And I think that's unfortunate. I think if we had, you know, less a less fragmentation, but also a sensation that, you know, we may not be able to move and actually get away from this, that, that in fact, there's nowhere we can really hide. And I think that's the situation where we've seen some really meaningful uh, sustained integration, desegregation, both in housing and schools are in sort of larger districts where folks have had a, made a long-term commitment and where they think that, you know, I'm going to be able to stay here. One, one example of that, I think, is, is Louisville, Kentucky, where there's where at least sort of, uh, you know, after 2000 or so or after the schools actually came out of uh, court-ordered mm-hmm. desegregation, mm-hmm. they actually were able to maintain uh, some housing and some school desegregation there. But it's difficult with uh, the fragmenta- the kind of fragmentation that you see in southeastern Michigan. Yes, yes. Uh, again, thanks very much for the call. Michael, let's go to Jim in Pontiac. Jim, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Hi. Uh, I uh, Back in the late 90s and my in-laws passed away, we went through their records and found a, a, doc, a deed for the first house they bought in 62. And in it, the deed called for them never to sell it to anyone who is not a Caucasian Christian. Um, so this is I, takes me to the idea that this is about you know mm. single parents and all that stuff is just nonsense. <laughs> this was flatly about race mm. and and religion. So mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't see how you can argue anything else. Yeah, yeah, uh, Jim. I'm glad you called uh, and and gave us that example. I mean, I think you go look through the deeds of of all kinds of properties uh, in Metro Detroit, and you see language like that both inside the city uh, and outside. Uh, let's go to Desmond in Pontiac. Desmond, Can welcome. I just interject? Oh, yeah, go ahead, Michelle. No, I was going to say, those, mm-hmm. those are called racially restrictive covenants mm-hmm. uh, for folks who might not know what those are. And what's really interesting is that um, they were put in all new subdivisions, all new uh, subdivisions in the Detroit metropolitan area between 1910 and 1950. Mm-hmm. Racially restrictive covenant basically ran with the land so that when you sold it, it, it went with it went to the next buyer, uh, and it meant that you couldn't sell uh, to the individuals who were listed based upon race typically. And then if you did, your neighbors would have a right of action against you. They'd be able to sue you and say, you know what, uh, we're going to try to hold up that sale because you're violating this restrictive covenant. So it gave a right of action to your neighbors in the neighborhood. But these were enforced. This is another example of sort of the interaction of the government. These were enforced by the courts um, for 40 years, mm-hmm. and they're overturned in a famous case. But you know they continue to be in the in the uh, the deeds of many many pieces of property even after the Supreme Court had outlawed had outlawed them. Yes, uh, Jim. Thanks very much for the call. Let's go to Desmond in Pontiac. Desmond, welcome to Detroit today. Well, I was uh, listening earlier, and I heard Arnold speak of how diverse Troy is, but I can recall a family friend, you know, in the 70s who moved there, and her neighbors vandalized and terrorized her and her family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she was the first black family to move into this neighborhood in Troy. Yeah. They they painted chimps on her garage door oh, and my. put bananas on her front porch. Wow. Wow. Yeah. No, Desmond, I think, uh, you know, there's no question that when African-Americans attempt to integrate into white neighborhoods back in the 70s, 
even now, I mean, let's let's talk about what happened in Rochester uh, a few weeks ago, where an African American boy knocked on the door to try to find directions and was uh, met with someone with a shotgun. There is this this sort of reactionary uh, response often to the idea of integration. Uh, Desmond, thanks very much for that call. Okay, Michelle Adams, professor of law and at uh, Yeshiva University's Benjamin and Cardozo School of Law and author of the New Yorker article titled The Unfulfilled Promise of the Fair Housing Act. Thanks very much for being here on Detroit Today. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Coming up next, HUD Secretary Ben Carson wants to increase rent for people receiving federal housing assistance. Some of the neediest Americans could see their rents triple under Carson's plan. We're going to hear from Diane Yentel, president and CEO of the National Low Income Housing Coalition. And don't forget, if you have to miss any of today's show, you don't have to miss out entirely on the conversation. You can go to iTunes or wherever you download podcasts, download and subscribe to Detroit Today and take us with you and listen when you are ready. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Detroit Today.